Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. I have a returning guest today who has gone from full-time professional career, essentially what he calls his job, to being a full-time real estate investor. And there are certainly pros and cons, and it's not necessarily for everybody. So it may be a goal for you, but it may not be a goal for someone else. So today we're going to talk to Lane about the pros and cons, what he's learned, his journey, and maybe talk about some things that you never thought about and see if it's really the direction you want to go. At the end of the day, what we do agree on is that passive income is great. Being a passive real estate investor shouldn't take a lot of your time. And uh, getting involved in passive real estate investments is nothing complicated. It's just a matter of having the desire and the ability and the right team and knowledge to move forward. And that doesn't take a whole heck of a lot. So let's explore that today with Lane. And here's that interview. Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. It's my pleasure to welcome Lane Kawaoka back to the show. Lane was, and I emphasize was, a full-time civil engineer from Honolulu, Hawaii. And he just quit his full-time job this past month. So now he's a full-time real estate investor with a portfolio of single-family homes in Seattle, Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, and Pennsylvania. He's also a partner in a syndication that controls over 2,600 apartments and RV units. That's a large portfolio. After Lane's parents got duped with their 401k and stock market investments, he made it a mission of his to help people get off what he calls the corrupt Wall Street roller coaster and start focusing on Main Street investments with safer, higher returns that benefit the American middle class. So with that, welcome back to the show, Lane. Hey, thanks for having me, Marco. Helps fill up my day. Yeah, it's great to have you back on. You know, we had you on the show back in episode number 107. And back then you were working full-time as a civil engineer and investing on the side in real estate and trying to build a passive income portfolio for yourself. And so you've achieved that. And so why don't we start off as a refresher, learning about you and telling us about your background and how you got started in real estate investing? Yeah. So graduated college in 2007 from engineering school. But at that point, just like everybody else, told to get a, go to school, get a good job, work at the said job, and then buy that primary residence because it's uh, supposedly the way to get on the escalator wealth. So I bought that first home in 2009, was never at home because I was working at a job that was 100% travel. So I just started to rent it out. The rents were 2200 The mortgage was 1600 And for a young 20-year-old kid, that was a lot of beer money. I knew nothing about the 1% rule. I knew not, that house was 350000 in Seattle in an A-class neighborhood. I knew nothing about getting B and C-class properties. But it got me started, right? So I'm an accidental landlord. Nice. So, you know, you were working full-time professionally as a civil engineer, and I think you did that for a number of years up until recently. So you finally took the leap and quit your job. 
So what was it that made you decide to quit being a civil engineer? I mean, aside from the obvious, which is a passive income, you know, if you have the ability to quit, do it. But some people love what they do. And I don't know if that was you, if you loved what you did, but tell us what made you make the decision. Yeah, well, I didn't like what I did. Let's be honest, right? I mean, a lot of engineers, I think, unfortunately, we don't work with people. We work with things and numbers, which isn't very uh, fun, I guess. So I think there's a disconnect with uh, a lot of our careers. And then a lot of us get put into management positions and have to take a higher salary with way more responsibility. So it's just kind of a bad deal. So, you know, early on when I bought that first rental and I was making a few hundred dollars of cash flow, I was like, wow, this is my ticket out of this rat race. And 10 years later, it's a slow, slow thing, right? But it worked. Right. So I was actually surprised to hear you say you didn't like your job (laughs) because that takes a lot of time and schooling to get to become a civil engineer. And a lot of people look up to engineers because they recognize that aside from it being a good paying job, a six-figure income, it's a respected profession. So I guess if you don't like it, you don't like it. I was actually surprised to hear you say that. Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, I, you know, I was working for a big private company and obviously that's not any fun because everybody, it's very cutthroat. You got to kind of watch your back, but I went to more government jobs and things got a lot better, you know, a lot more pleasant people to work around with a little bit more quality of life, but still having to go at this job day in, day out and just trade your time for money for you know, $100,000 salary isn't that bad. And it is pretty much easy money, but there's more to life, especially when your investments kind of start to hit that hockey stick and exponentially grow on you. Right. Yeah. And you cut your teeth on turnkey real estate investments, and then you kind of ventured out into doing larger deals through syndication. So how did investing in turnkey real estate and these other investments ultimately make that possible for you? Again, I'm not asking you the obvious answer, you know, that passive income stacked, but what happened in that journey that allowed you to grow personally and in your portfolio and then leave your job? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a progression, right? I mean, so the first couple of rentals I bought, the second rental in Seattle I bought was, I was starting to learning about, Oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't buy this luxury real estate, right? Let's buy a more B class rental. And then I learned about more cash flowing secondary and tertiary markets. So the third property I bought was a turnkey rental, you know, it was just, out of your comfort zone, right? Even for me as already a landlord for a couple of years, few years to buy something sight unseen and just going off property managers and inspectors as my due diligence squad. That was what got me comfortable buying out of state. You know, that, that's a big step that I think most passive investors should get through. How, how important was the team that you assembled, the people you were working with to your success in investing a long distance? I mean, I say I invested a long distance, 3,000 miles away from Southern California because I was investing in Florida, Georgia, Michigan, and you're in Hawaii. I mean, it's it's not that you even have land between you and your, your properties. You have land and a huge ocean called the Pacific. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, I think most of sophisticated passive investors are not really going to visit the property until it makes sense, right? After you have a few properties because, you know, $1,000 trip and more importantly, you know, a day or two away from your family or 150K plus job just doesn't make sense. So you have to rely on that team. The most important one is the property manager, right? And the second is the inspector. The third, which is I don't really consider part of your team is your broker. I mean, they're just trying to get you to buy properties, which is why like, you know, your guys' team is kind of nice, right? Because you're kind of separated your party from that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. The property manager to me is the, the most important team member. 
And then everybody else, you know, just kind of fills in the roles that they fill in. So you made this massive transition from full-time employment to full-time real estate investor. Do you want to comment about that transition, how that came to be and how it was when you actually said, I quit <laughs> and, and then rolled into your new role? Well, I mean, I, I went to uh, this Tony Robbins thing and this is the second time I went and yeah, he brainwashed me again to start thinking of how I'm going to quit. So my first exercise was like, all right, do I have my basic necessities covered, right? I'm not up to my, you know, my goal of passive cash flow a month by any means, but I'm getting there. Now it's more like, do I take that time and focus it to finding more deals, meeting more people and vetting the deals that I do go in more heavily? Or do I just spend my day at my job, you know, getting easy paychecks, but you know, it's where do I want to put the finite number of time is what I'm thinking. I thought like, all right, get the numbers done first, but then also think how am I going to use the time? Because it, it is sort of an illogical progression, right? Why are you going to give up this easy money at your day job? I mean, that at the end of the day, that sort of is like a bunch of turnkey rentals in a sense. Yeah, it really is. So was there any fear? I mean, there's people listening to this right now thinking, oh man, you know, that would be such a shock or disruption in my life or, you know, just cutting off my income, which by the way, I don't recommend for most people because the fact that you actually have income, whether it's professional income or W-2 income, you have to look at that as an asset because you can't qualify for financing in most cases. And especially with residential financing, unless you can show income and at least for the last two years. So to make the leap and quit your full-time employment or whatever employment that might be, and venture out into quote unquote full-time real estate investing is actually not a smart thing to do unless you can transition and have the income to carry you through forward and through it. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we need to qualify for financing to keep building a portfolio. So was there any problem with you doing that or any kind of fear? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, glad you brought that up. You know, you can get 10 in your name and 10 in your spouse's name. But at that point I was Fannie made out. My head reached my cap. But, and I was just using commercial financing at that point, which really doesn't, you don't need a W-2 salary. For me, that checked that box. But I did this, Tim Ferriss, a lot of investors kind of follow him. He has, if you can Google like uh, this fear setting exercise he does, there's like a little TED speech he did. I have it on my website, simplepassivecashflow.com slash quit is the article. It's more of like a journal actually. So what you do is you list out all the things that you're scared of, all the fears and you say, all right, oh, cool. Well, like, how are we going to mitigate each and every one of these things? If there's no way to mitigate it, it's just a worry. And it's just, some, there's some kind of living belief fear that we got to get our own heads around. But, you know, when I did this, and I have my list of all the things on that page, but it was like everything I could have mitigated, you know, in one way or another. And it wasn't really that big of an issue. So when I broke it down like that, it made this whole illogical step very plausible. So how did you take that forward to setting your income target and timeline? You must have had a plan and an income goal or target and maybe a timeline that you applied to that. Did you actually take the time to map it out, that transition? I use this like analogy, like, you know, cash flow. Once you get up to like have enough cash where you can basically pay for your necessities, you're sort of like zero G gravity. You're not floating upwards. You're not sinking down to the earth. Most people are earth dwellers. They just walk around the earth because there's gravity. But I was still at the point where I was sort of zero G. I wasn't flying off into the stratosphere yet. 
but I knew that this was working and the time that I would spend in finding better deals would send me up there eventually. So at that point, I felt comfortable to kind of get going because, you know, the, the rent would get paid, the bills would get paid, whether I did anything or not. But I felt like my time and energy was spent to, you know, kind of propel this forward, this whole crazy real estate investing thing. In one of your emails to me, you mentioned dealing with some limiting beliefs. I don't know if you remember that, but if you do, how did you deal and overcome those limiting beliefs? I think like one thing I felt like, and I definitely see it now, like I missed that few thousand dollars coming in every couple of weeks, right? It's a miss for sure. But then there are a lot of projects that I felt like I could undergo and propel my real estate investing because I'd never had the bandwidth to do it. Partly the reason I didn't do it because I had this uh, easy money coming in and there was no reason to do it. I mean, this is the reason why, you know, rich doctors, or they're not really rich, they just have a big salaries. They never even buy a turnkey rental because the pain isn't there. There's not enough motivation. Again, that's why a lot of engineers do this, right? Because they don't make as much money. So they're kind of forced into taking a little bit of a chance. You're saying they're in a comfort zone that holds them back because they're comfortable. They don't, at least I shouldn't say all of them, but a lot of them don't feel that they need to do more than what they're doing in order to get ahead, especially down the road, because they're looking at maybe the now and the short-term future. Is that kind of the point there? Right. That or ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Well, I like to say ignorance is expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, bliss can lead to like, what's the cost? Like, what is the opportunity cost? What have you lost by being comfortable? You know, there's a saying that you're not really growing until you put yourself outside your comfort zone. And so until you put yourself in a situation where you are feeling uncomfortable mentally, physically, otherwise, you're not actually moving ahead or growing or becoming a bigger, better version of yourself. And so I believe that. And I think a lot of people, if they just take themselves back a little bit out of their comfort zone, they realize, oh, geez, maybe there are other possibilities out there. Right, right. And when you start to become a more sophisticated investor, you start hanging out with people who kind of say that say that stuff you just said over and over again. And you start to believe it like a, a little bit of like a religion. So I totally believe what you said. And, and here I am, I can sort of self-diagnose myself and say like, you know, this is just another example. I just need to get on my comfort zone and do it. Yeah. No different than sending off that check to the escrow company for 20 grand to buy that first turnkey rental. Or the next, or the next, or the next, you know. Or or that $50,000 check to the syndication where you don't really get any title or anything. It's just another step in the progression. Exactly. The the point is you keep taking steps towards your goal until you've achieved your goal or surpassed it. So talking about goals and strategies and all that kind of stuff, you mentioned something about a strategy around your taxes. I didn't know what you meant by that. So my question, if I had to put it into the form of a question, what is your strategy or what was your strategy back then around taxes, which make that leap and get away from the hundred thousand plus year job and going full time into your investing? Yeah. So, you know, with a lot of these single family homes or turnkeys, you're depreciating the asset over 27 years. And I'm sure you talk about this a lot in previous podcasts, which is nice, but with bigger deals, you're able to do a cost segregation, which costs like five to $10,000, which is not worth it on a smaller property, but on a bigger deal, People pull their money together and do this engineer to do a cost seg for you. And then you can get bonus depreciation because you're writing off each individual part of the, the building. So a lot of these deals I'm going in, if I'm putting in $50,000 my first year, 
you know, there may be no returns the first year, but we'll have maybe $35,000, $40,000 of first year depreciation. So a lot of times I think with the first, this year's bonus depreciation laws, which is phasing out in the next few years, we're able to write off the entire asset, 30% of it. So now I have all these K-1 tax forms coming back, just like how people have their depreciation on their single family homes. And it's just these passive losses are just stacking up in my passive loss bucket, not really doing anything because I'm a, not a real estate professional. I can't tap into that. So part of the strategy was for me to quit my job right before the middle of the year. So I can, in 2019, I can qualify as a real estate professional to actually use those passive losses. Oh, gotcha. I had a comment. The whole thing about cost segregation, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, I'm just throwing it in for the completeness of information. There are companies actually set up today that allow, I don't want to say smaller investors, but investors investing in smaller deals like single families, duplexes, fourplexes to actually do an affordable cost segregation study that allows them to take the same advantages of doing it on a commercial deal uh, at a smaller level, whether it's single property or a you know handful or a portfolio of them. And so they just do it across the board and they do it at a nominal fee on a per door basis. So, yeah, I've heard of that too. And yeah, I'm sending their information later when you get a chance, but I heard it was like four or 500 bucks. And then you just go into a website, you type in some preliminary information. My understanding is like, it's good enough. They're not going to do like a, a full blown, you know, you're not paying them that much, of course, from the get go, but it's good enough. And you're going to be able to aggressively write off that asset quicker. Yeah. I actually interviewed this guy several months ago. So I'll get you the information. And for those people watching or listening to this, it's on our website. And it's also one of the previous episodes. It's not that long ago. I forgot the gentleman's name, but I'll put it in the show notes too. Yeah, definitely something good if you're going to hold it, you know, more than five years. Yes. The longer you hold on, the better that is. Yeah, definitely. Lane, you're a big advocate of investing passively, obviously. I mean, you and I just live it, breathe it, talk about it, preach about it. You know, we're on a soapbox. So, what might be some of the big lessons that you've learned over the last year since I actually had you on the show the last time? Because obviously back then you were actively investing as a full-time employee. Now you're a full-time investor without you know the safety net of employment. What can you share? I'd love to hear your thoughts since we last spoke. I think, you know, but right before we last spoke, I was kind of doing going down this path of being an, more an active investor, being an apartment operator. And then I realized like, there was no way I was going to be able to do it. Number one, I wasn't in the physical location to do these deals. A lot of these deals that to cash flow, you're going to be in, need to be in Texas or the Southeast. And I'm just not there. I live in Hawaii. And at the time I lived in Seattle. So just recognizing that I wasn't in the position to do it, nor I did this other exercise where I figured out how much assets I had. And if I just you know, grew my, my uh, portfolio by 15%, I would be where I wanted to be and be financially free. I mean, that's the goal. So I asked a lot of these investors a lot of time, like, you know, what the heck is your goal, man? What are you doing this for? You know, what's that passive number that you're shooting for per month? And you can use math and figure out when you're going to hit it. If that's your goal, then why would you want to go pick up a 20 unit and put in all your eggs in one basket and do it all yourself? You know, just continue to pick up some single family homes, pay them down, cash flow that way. Or, you know, go into bigger deals in a syndication. You know, it's, it's just figure out what your end game is, right? Define the rules of the game. Because if you don't, you'll just keep playing. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, I mean, that's a great observation. I mean, do you have any suggestions based on that for people listening to this and saying, yeah, I want to grow what I'm doing or start investing passively? 
Yeah, I mean, I think with single family homes, I mean, it's not unheard of to get 20 to 30% a year when you know you might only cash flow, especially these days, it's so tough, right? I mean, you might only cash flow five to 10%, but that's the only the tip of the iceberg. You're not seeing the mortgage pay down by the tenant, you're not seeing the little appreciation, and you're not seeing the tax benefits. So that's why you're investing in this stuff and not Wall Street traditional assets. I don't know what happened with your parents and the whole thing about getting taken by Wall Street and, you know, their 401ks and all that stuff. But, you know, this whole thing about retirement accounts, there's almost nine trillion with a T trillion dollars in IRAs right now. And of that, less than 5% is actually held in a self-directed retirement account, which is eye-opening and something to take note of if you're listening to this, because if you can understand that you can convert your IRA and sometimes your 401k into a self-directed account. And that allows you to do a whole lot more with it. But what's interesting is at such a small number, we have about $300 billion of that, that is at least for the foreseeable future going to be coming of age, if you will, with the 10,000 baby boomers that are retiring, what seems to be every day. And so these boomers need to put this money into something. They're coming out of you know, company-sponsored pension plans and maybe 401ks. Now they need to start looking at, well, how do I create income from what I've built in terms of a nest egg and what investment vehicles do I put it in? So I'd like to know what your thoughts are on using self-directed retirement accounts and maybe some tips or suggestions for people. I, neither one of us are like registered investment advisors, so you know we can't really tell people what to do, but we can certainly talk about it. So I'd love to know what you think about all that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think access to liquidity is number one, right? So when I look at a, a investor's profile, first thing I'm looking for is low hanging fruit. And that's usually just the liquidity that they have. So we're going to go and invest that, pick up a single family home here or put it into a deal here. But inevitably people will burn through that. The average guy has about maybe fifty, dollars $100,000 into that. So we start looking for the next higher hanging fruit, which is typically what's in their retirement account or um, you know, what equity do they have in their home. Now, at that point, every situation is different. It's one or the other. But like you said, it's like they have so much money in their retirement account, not making anything. And I would say that, especially in this market, that's probably the more stuff at risk at this point. So let's go attack that. Let's go allocate those funds first. Uh, self-directed IRA is a great way to get access to that, but I would prefer putting it in like a QRP or solo 401k format. So you, you're not subject to UDFI tax. So the government says like, Hey, Hey Marco, it's cool that you can invest this stuff and we're going to give you these tax, good tax treatment with it. But as soon as you start leveraging the money, you know, taking 20 grand out of your self-directed IRA and getting another $50,000 loan to buy that single family home, we're going to tax you on the portion of that. So it's kind of a, I want to say it's a deal killer, but it definitely cuts into your returns. Right. For those wondering what a solo 401k is and an EQRP, which is a, a qualified retirement plan, we've also covered that on previous episodes. You could, you know, search for that on our website and I'll put that in the show notes as well. But they're actually very flexible and powerful you, uh, vehicles that allow you to self-direct your retirement account. And it gives you some additional options and flexibility in being able to do that. But if you're using a regular 401k or self-directed IRA, and these are truly self-directed, as long as you don't have leverage, you have no risk of having what's called UBIT taxes on 
interest income or any kind of income that you get in there. And I'm not the expert on this. So obviously, you know, the guests I bring on are the ones you should be listening to, not so much myself. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's just good conversations and like, you know, every situation is different. So you shouldn't listen to here and say, oh, you know, you said you should make a QRP. I mean, every situation is different. Like for me, when I had my 401k, I had a few years back is when I withdrew it. I didn't do a QRP or self-directed IRA. I just took it out. One was just for simplicity. I didn't want it into this account. So I paid the taxes and I paid the penalty. Right, right. I mean, for me, like the taxes, it's going to go as income. So you just have to be mindful where your AGI is, right? If you're already in the highest one, you're going to kind of pay a lot of taxes. But if you're, you can strategically do it when you're in a lower income time or strategically take it over a few years so you don't pop into that next higher tax bracket. It's a little complicated. Yeah. Yeah. AGI meaning adjusted gross income. Right. Yeah. So it just laying and wrapping up here, you know, I'm of the belief that everyone who's not a full-time real estate investor is busily involved in everything else in their life, you know, whether it be family, career, their friends, their hobbies, you name it, right? What final thoughts and maybe some advice can you give these, what I refer to as busy professionals and investors that are looking to grow their real estate portfolio? This is actually something I asked you last time too, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I would say if you're a passive investor, you really shouldn't be spending more than a few hours a week being a passive investor. I mean, I don't know what there is to do. And I say this like reflecting back five, 10 years ago when I would be doing a bunch of so-called investing stuff, looking at spreadsheets. I look back at myself and I say, wow, was I wasting a whole bunch of time? There was really no reason for me to be making that amazing spreadsheet. This stuff isn't that hard. It's passive real estate investing. It shouldn't take up too much of your time. You should be spending your time with your kids. Or, uh, I mean, for a lot of us, unfortunately, you don't want to hear this. You probably should just go back to work because that's your best way of creating capital. Right. And the ability to qualify for financing if and when you need it. Right. Because I don't right now, I mean, I'm actually selling off my single family homes. I don't do any of that, that stuff that I would waste the Saturday, Sunday afternoon, five, 10 years ago. It was all non-value added work. If you're a passive investor and you're spending more than a few hours a week on this, you're doing it the wrong way. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah. Or you're trying to do it, or maybe you are doing it the right way, but you're doing it with nobody on your team. You're doing trying to do it all yourself, which... I guess in hindsight is the wrong way to do it. So yeah, you need the right people and the right strategy. Right. Yeah, for sure. Lane, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show again. So tell our listeners where they can find you or where they can get more information. Yeah, you guys can check out my uh, blog and podcast, simplepassivecashflow.com. And then uh, my email is lane at simplepassivecashflow. And uh, thanks for having me again, Marco. Hey, it's been my pleasure, Lane. Thanks for coming back on. We'll talk soon. a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. 
Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.